I just love being here. I hope you guys love being here. And uh, if you do, just make sure your face shows it when the pastor's preaching and give him some positive feedback. You know, it's okay to say amen, preach it. Um, some announcements as we go through this uh, bulletin insert. If you have never been to the Fall Fellowship at the Nelsons, oh, you've got to come. Um, you know that my wife is going through some uh, medical issues, and her biggest concern, she spent the last week trying to reschedule doctor's appointments. I said, do you really want to get this over with? She goes, I want to be able to go to the Nelsons Fall Fellowship. <laughs> she has her priorities straight. So come on out. You're, you're going to see everybody in a, in a different light in and you're going to learn all kinds of stuff about people, and it'll just make your love and appreciation for them increase. Pastor's going to be out the next two Sundays, so pray for uh, the man filling the pulpit. And pray for Wayne, that he'll, he'll actually rest. And you see that the ladies are starting a new Bible study tomorrow in the cottage. And you guys can look at the rest of those. Um, I think that's it. Well, if you don't have your bulletin and worship folder and insert, you need to get one. There's some in the back. We'll need that in just a moment. I want to thank Blake for uh, reminding us from Psalm 103, and we'll sing that in just a bit. We'll sing it after we have communion, and he'll add more to he'll have more to say about Psalm 103 in just a bit. But if you notice in your worship folder, I have uh, highlighted this. The I guess it's the first five verses. I forgot to number them when I printed it in here. So, but you can see the highlighted portion. I'm going to have us read that together here in just a moment to be able to prepare us then for communion with Christ. And to think through this psalm and how it affects us in that way. I'm going to give you just a bit, uh, a time here in just a bit, to pray and to prepare your heart to commune with Christ. Jesus said, when we take these elements, we do this in remembrance of him. Today's remembrance, so much to remember about Jesus Christ. But I'm going to focus on this Psalm 103 if you notice, it's a psalm of great praise as we gather together. And benefits are mentioned in these first five verses. What benefits? Well, forgiveness, healing, redemption, a crowning, as it's explained here, with love and mercy, which I'll be preaching on mercy here in just a bit. And then finally, this satisfaction, a provision that is in God. All of this is necessary because of our sin. And God has blessed us with his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love. And so I want to read this together, all of us, and, and then take a moment when we're done reading. You privately, where you're at, prepare your heart to worship Christ and to remember him. And then I'll pray, bless the elements, and we'll go ahead and receive 
communion. I'll give you instructions at that time. Typically, if you haven't been with us before, you don't have to be a member of the church. You do need to be a member of the body of Christ and in good standing. And uh, if you're not, you can take the time that we give you to pray to prepare your heart. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You might hear that verse one more time here in just a bit. But in any case, then we'll call up this side to get both elements, return back to your seat, the middle, and then this side over here. And we'll wait for one another to remember Christ together in Holy Communion. So let's go ahead and begin and Congregation, let's read together this highlighted part, this darkened part that I have here, beginning with bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. Take a moment to think on these things. Prepare your heart to remember Christ. Father, we have gathered together today to worship your holy name. I pray from the bottom of our hearts our response would be to bless your holy name. We are blessed by you, blessed by you in the sense that you have forgiven us our sin. The blessed man is the one whom you do not impute iniquity. And I pray, Father, that aspect of your great mercy would be known in either in very clear ways today. We were thankful for all the benefits that we have. Ultimately, it is the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so, Father, as we think on these things, I, I pray that that would be the expression of our heart to recognize you for who you are, and all that you have done. And Father, we're thankful beyond just dragging us from the the pit of our demise, but then to crown us with glory and honor, that which we don't deserve. We're not glorious and we're not honorable, but it is your incredible grace granted to us, expressed in your faithful love, and your mercy. I pray that we would be increasingly satisfied in you. May things of this world, lesser things, grow 
strangely dim. I pray that you give us strength and courage and conviction and comfort. May we truly be renewed like a soaring eagle, not powered by the flesh, but by the spirit. May all that we do bring glory and honor to you, and may we truly remember and do this in remembrance of you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The elders now are going to come and prepare the table, and I'll ask Jerry to bless the elements. We have two elements, the bread and the cup. You'll receive both of them in just a moment. If you're going to participate in communion, return back to your seat and then wait. And we'll start on this side, the middle, and then this side. Jerry, would you bless the elements? Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful for these that you have provided for us, Lord. The bread representing your body and broken for us, and the wine, the blood of Christ, spilled for us on the cross. Father, we ask that you would bless them now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and rise on this side and get both elements and return to your seat.
two elements as Jerry prayed for. One is the cup and the other is the bread. The bread, of course, represents the very life of Christ. It is that guiltless life that we will need to be able to stand before God. And God has blessed us with that, and therefore we bless him. That the righteous requirement of the law is actually fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He never was guilty. There was no guilt in him. And God has granted by his mercy this life of Christ. Do this in remembrance of him. We are told that Satan really is the accuser of the brethren more than anything else. And that he might, yes, point to Christ. He's one that is not guilty. But we are. And the beautiful thing is that it is indeed his blood that has made propitiation for our sin. That is, it has appeased God's wrath. It has actually covered that sin. It has blotted it out. It has removed it from the register. There is nothing then when looking at this account of all our sin because it has all been atoned for by Jesus Christ. Receive this in remembrance of him. Amen. Well, before we sing our second half of Psalm 103, let's examine it a little bit. And if you take your Bibles we'll, or the back of your bulletin, we do have the same uh, verses are just not numbered, but Psalm 103, we're going to be reciting verses 11 through 22 together before we sing it, just to further examine the Lord's steadfast love for those that fear him. So let's re- read this together, starting in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does, his, does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And it and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Obeying the voice of his word, bless the Lord all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You know, as I look look through these verses, starting in verses 11, 12, 13, even down to verse 17, you see words like steadfast love, 
remove our transgressions, shows compassion, um, and it's difficult to comprehend that degree of love or that degree of mercy. Pastor's going to preach on some of that and give us a further glimpse of the Lord's mercy, but um, the closest that we can get to that possibly is what David indicates in verse 13. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Yet, the Lord's love is a perfect and a complete love, unlike what fathers or, or parents can afford to their children. As you look at verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, we see that people quickly come and go, but the love of God remains everlasting with those who know his commands and obey them. And ideally, as parents model reverence to God and obedience to his word, their children will notice and will continue the righteousness that they have been shown. And then in the final verses, 19 through 22, we see that regardless of humanity's response to the Lord, God's rule is total and unquestionable. As you see in the verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules overall. He's praised and obeyed by the mighty angels of heaven. Creation itself speaks its praise. And so how much more should we respond to the Lord uh, of his love and his mercy, uh, us chosen, us elect? Um, we should really think about that as we sing this Psalm 103. Is how, is, what is our response to the Lord um, as he has given so much to us um, and even the, the, his creation uh, praises him? So let's stand together. Let's take out our inserts if you have them and let's sing this second half of Psalm 103 to the same tune that we had before.
take our hymn books and turn to number 449. John 14, 19 says, Because I live, you will live too. 449, Because He Lives. Let's flip over to 504. 504. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong and courageous, for it is the Lord our God who goes with you. Deuteronomy 31 6. 504. 
As I was driving to church this morning at uh, City Hall, I saw on the sign um, warning and uh, counsel for suicide prevention. And as I reflect on what we just sang, the words, life is worth the living just because he lives. Such a, what a wonderful message. That is what our world needs to hear. <clears throat> I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. You can find this on pages 924 and 925 of your Pew Bible. I'll be reading, as always, from the English Standard Version. Please listen with me as I read God's Word. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. 
A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let us pray. Father, you are a good God. You are able. You are faithful. You are full of mercy, Father. I pray now that we would be reminded of this truth, and I pray that we would glorify you in it in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, that we would be strong in you, that we would know that the victory is ours, and that we would preach your gospel, that life is worth the living just because you live. Please help us. Please help us to live holy lives. I pray that you would use the offerings given today to glorify your name and further your kingdom. Uh, please help us to listen. Lord, and please help us to live lives that glorify the name of Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that I pray, amen. amen.
please take your hymn books once more and let's stand together and turn to number 371. 371. Come all Christians be committed. Prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12 2. 371. Church, Hebrews chapter 8, that line here in the hymn we just sang, showing mercy to each other mirrors his redeeming son. I do want to talk about the mercy of God this morning, and we do give mercy one to another because of the mercy that has been granted to us by God in Christ Jesus. We're at Hebrews chapter 8 and specifically looking at the New Covenant. As the preacher of Hebrews reminds his Jewish audience about this New Covenant, the New Covenant that had been prophesied that it would be fulfilled, it was prophesied one of the places we looked at it was Jeremiah and chapter 31. The prophet Jeremiah has talked about this 
And we've kind of walked through this, and now I'm finishing up with this last concept here. Not that this exhaustively concludes the idea of the new covenant, but focusing on the mercy of God. I have a typical response, and I'm not original with this response, and it is very much a cliche, and sometimes I kind of feel that way when I say it, but oftentimes, you know, you get this question, how are you doing? And one of our responses could be, good, how are you? I mean, this is just part of polite society. Oftentimes, I'll say, better than I deserve, (laughs) and I mean it, because I deserve judgment And God gives me mercy. Occasionally, it becomes a talking point for me. God has granted me mercy. In Titus chapter 3, I'll read it for you. Speaking of the original condition of man and one that I realized that I was in, Paul would say to his protege Titus in chapter 3, verse 3, "...for we ourselves were once foolish." We're talking about foolishness versus wisdom on Wednesday nights. And if you remember, foolishness in the Scripture is not just being silly. It is moral rebellion against God. And hence, it explains it here. Another way to, to think of that category, that state of being disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But there's a change, a dramatic change by God's grace, his mercy towards us, described here. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Full stop. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's what I want to focus on today is the mercy of God. How is it expressed? Well, it's by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's the only way it's going to come, and that's the only way that it's going to occur is through Jesus Christ. So what is the result? So that being justified then by, that is declared righteous, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now you know why I'm better than I deserve. This is what I am, heir according to the hope of eternal life. It isn't because of what I have done. He has saved us. It isn't because of my righteousness. I'm foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions. That would be characteristic of my life prior to Christ. Coming, Christ comes, he saves us. Why? Because of his mercy. That's why anyone is saved. His mercy. And so I'm reminded of that hymn, which um, I, I went ahead and added it to the end, and I'll let us all sing together. And I hope you will have a renewed focus on his mercy. Because I will sing of the mercy of the Lord forever. I will sing. I will sing. And it's my prayer for you today that you will sing also in new bright tones concerning his mercy as we're reminded of it today. That you would have this indeed song in your heart an increasing 
cherishing of this attribute of God, his divine mercy. In Hebrews 8, we're finishing up talking about this new covenant. It's based, if you remember in verse 6, on better promises. Those better promises are enumerated in the new covenant. It is all of God. It is all of his work. He will put his law in the heart instead of on a tablet of stone. He'll write it on the heart, verse 10. He will indeed be our God, verse 10. He will teach us, we talked about that, that there will be a, um, uh, a, a unique guidance by God, verse 11, that we will truly know him. And then finally, these two, I'm going to put them together here in verse 12, that God says he's going to be merciful and remember not, if you will, the negative here. This is the better promise which has been completed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We call it the new covenant. It's the new covenant in contrast to the old. It isn't that God is now saving in a different way. He's always saved that way. This is the way anyone was ever saved, is by his mercy expressed in his grace. But how would it be accomplished? How would it be fulfilled? It is through Jesus Christ. It is the expression of anyone that might come to God, repent, and trust him, and in response, praise and obey him. This is a supernatural change of heart. This sinner, this once foolish, must become wise. It isn't due to their learning and their apprehension of things. It is because of God's grace that makes a sinner now a saint. God must initiate this change of heart. The change of heart that is actually required. This is a change of heart that is a merciful grace of God. God accomplishes this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, as we find out and as the, those under the old covenant realize how it is fulfilled. God must take on human flesh, live among us, die atoning for our sin, earning that perfect righteousness in his life, be buried and rise again and ascend on high. If you remember in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, I'll read it for you, speaking about Jesus Christ in the incarnation. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That Why? So that he might become, and here it is, a merciful high priest, a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of his people. This is God's mercy expressed in the payment of sin. The New, Test the new Covenant then promises this, by the mercy of God, complete and full absolution of guilt. And it is the only way that it will be taken care of. It is through Christ. 
Let's be reminded of this new covenant which accomplishes this. And I'll just invite you to, to look once again, beginning in verse 10 in chapter 8. Hebrews 10, verse 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. Why? I will be merciful towards their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would grant us greater insight into your mercy. And may we sing of the mercy of the Lord forever from the heart. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our focus is on verse 12, as you've noticed here. These two actions that are mentioned in this verse, one of being merciful and the other of remembering not. This remembering not is simply God's choice to forget, in a sense. Not that he ever forgets anything, so what is, what is he choosing to forget? That is, he's choosing not to hold that against you. What? Your sin. These are the expressions, this being merciful and remembering not, these are expressions of the very character of God who is a merciful God. And this needs to be known and emphasized there are many who might read the Old Testament and some of the things that occur and some have concluded the idea that God is somehow not merciful, that he's mean. They might characterize him as vindictive and maybe even petty. God is nothing of the sort. You do see his wrath on display against evil, but it is a just and righteous response to evil. If you or an I who are not God obviously see something very evil taking place, we would respond to it to some degree. And that's what God does. And, and, I, and I put it this way, theologically, to help you understand. God's wrath is really a response to evil. And in that sense, it's not intrinsic in his nature. It's a righteous response to that which is not righteous. God can be considered angry, for sure. There's a famous sermon, Sinners in an Angry... Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that's true. But why is he angry? He's not angry in the sense of being capricious or vindictive. God is wrathful against sin in general. And sinners in particular who are morally 
in rebellion against him. God is not like us in the sense, oh, well, that really annoys me, so I'll respond in wrath, or uh, I'm just, uh, just upset about this. No, that's not who God is. Listen to Psalm 7. I'll read it for you. God is a righteous judge. He's pointing out the very character of God. When you think of God, God is absolutely perfect, and therefore he would be a righteous judge. Any actions, any decisions are always right. The judges in our land, we can have a decision that's put down, but then we might appeal to a higher authority and a higher court. There is no higher than God. God is a righteous judge. And a God, Psalm 7, 11, who feels indignation every day. Why does God feel indignation then? Because of unrighteousness, that's why. If a man does not repent, God will, and note the imagery here, wet his sword. He is bent, that's speaking of judgment, he has bent and readied his bow. He is, that's like a bow and arrow, if you will. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrow fiery shafts. Yeah, it, it would be very disturbing to fall in the hands of an angry God. And great fear should come upon those who would be in moral rebellion against him. The imagery is he has a sword and it will cut clean through. He has a bow that is bent and a fiery arrow ready to be released at any moment. Why is that sword not being struck? Why are those arrows not flying? Because God is merciful, that's why. Hence, I'm doing better than I deserve. How about you? God is merciful. And that's what you need to know about God. That is intrinsic in his nature. He is merciful. The scripture says in verse 12 of our text, I will be merciful. Mercy, from the theological dictionary, is described this way. A focused disposition of compassionate forgiveness towards his people especially in light of their distressful and dire circumstances. Okay. His, his disposition of compassion and forgiveness, especially considering their distressful and dire circumstances. What are the desire, what are the uh, dire, should I say, circumstances? Sin. That's what puts you in a distressful state. Hence, guilt. Theologians categorize, and I think this is helpful, mercy as one of the communicable attributes of God. God has many attributes, many characteristics. We, we glorify God, that is, we see the beauty of his divine attributes, and one of them is mercy. God has other attributes that he doesn't share that are unique to him, such as his omnipotence and his omniscience, his omnipresence. But many of his attributes are shared with us, that is mankind, 
who is made in his image. We don't express them perfectly. We don't express them perfectly due to the fallen state in which we exist. But God is holy in perfection in every aspect. So when his mercy is expressed, it is expressed in perfection. The biblical text reveals to us that this attribute of mercy, think about this, that is expressed by God, is experienced in us. How? By receiving his compassion, his grace, his kindness, his forgiveness, and his faithfulness. And so they're all tied together. This is how his mercy is expressed. You say, what is it? It's experienced as grace. It's experienced as kindness, forgiveness, faithfulness. And I'd add patience. We'll look at that in a bit if we have time. And here I invite you to consider who God is as a merciful God, even from the Old Covenant. And if you wish, you can turn to Exodus chapter 34. I'll be hitting a few references. You can listen or look. Sometimes it's helpful to look so that you can see it in the very text. Mark it down and note it. Exodus 34, if you, if you remember, here God is talking to Moses. He's going to reveal his law to Moses. And God says something about himself. Remember, you can't really know a person unless they tell you things about themselves. And we don't always tell perfect things about ourselves, but God does. And so here, God reveals something about himself in verse 6 of Exodus 34. The Lord passes by Moses and proclaims this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. That's the God of the old. That is the God of the new. He doesn't change. He couldn't change. He couldn't get worse. He can't get better. He just is that he is. He's merciful. Notice this, and gracious. How is it experienced keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin. But note this, though, for those that are in rebellion against him, he will by no means clear the guilty. He's visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In short, that, that that doesn't mean intergenerational sin, that kind of thing. The idea is, you know what? If, if If you don't repent and follow Christ, it will affect future generations. That's what he's saying. It affects other people. God, however, is merciful and gracious. Moses recognizes this and see in verse 8, what is his response? His response is to bow his head. He recognizes who God is and his need for mercy But because of God's character, he recognizes God will grant it. And I want you to know that when you see his mercy. It isn't as if God is hiding it. 
This is who he is. And this is why you can come to him no matter where you're at and who you are and seek him. Moses bows his head and he worships. And he says, if I've now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. That's a way to describe a rebellious people that he's leading and he recognized he's one among them. And what is his prayer? Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses didn't know how God would do this other than it is based on his character and it is complete and fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ, who is a merciful high priest. He is a merciful mediator between God and man. Moses stands as a mediator between the people and God and he prays on their behalf, but he only points to and represents someone who is true God, mediator, Christ who prays on your behalf even now. He is the merciful high priest. Go to him. God's mercy is experienced, I think, most notably in his patience. And if you want to see that, go to 2 Peter chapter 3. You guys are studying 2 Peter I believe, in the ministry training hour. Thank you, Gordon. And you're probably not here in chapter 3 yet, but you will be. And I recommend, if you're not a part of it, please do attend. This is a great time to think about God's Word. In Second Peter chapter 3, it talks about God's patience. We experience the mercy of God and I would say generally everyone does in humanity, experiences it to a certain degree as it's expressed in God's patience. Verse 8 of chapter 3 in Second Peter. He says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved. By the way, it's helpful to know who this is being addressed to here in just a moment because I'll show you how it connects He's talking about the beloved. If you want to know who those are, chapter 1, verse 1, it begins that way. Those who have obtained faith by Christ's righteousness. Okay? That's the beloved. He says, don't overlook this. What? That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, God is from eternity to eternity. He doesn't measure time the way we do. We are finite, so we think about days and time. And God is, supersedes all of that because he is infinite. God is beyond time. However, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Okay? But he's patient toward you. Who's the you? The you or the beloved? The you are those who obtain faith by Christ. That's his mercy then being expressed towards his people. What? He isn't desiring or wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why he's patient. But there will come a time in which the cup of wrath is full and will spill over, and that's what he's communicating, the day of the Lord. This is the day of judgment. 
The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. He must destroy that which is unrighteous. That is a righteous response. We call it his wrath. But note, intrinsically, God is a God of mercy, and he's patient. He's patient with you. He's patient with me. He's patient with the world in general, I would say. We might call this common grace, but you can also call it common mercy, because it includes mercy. He's patient. He permits the world to continue. In the Old Testament text, we can read what we rightly deserve, like those within the day of Noah, who were in moral rebellion against God. We would deserve the same, to be overcome by a deluge of judgment. But God, if you remember, we talked about the Noahic covenant, did what? He hung his bow. You know, the one with the arrows that are fiery from Psalm 7. He hung his bow after that in the clouds. Yes, and there has been a symbol and still is a symbol today of God's mercy in the sky. And every time you see that, see his mercy. Even among those that have appropriated it to try to communicate moral rebellion, I look at that and then respond in my own mind now and thinking, you know, God's really patient. He's very merciful. But the day of the Lord will come. And we cry out and call people to repentance and faith. His mercy is most clearly displayed not only in his patience, but in ultimately this redemption that he calls for of sinful men, none whom deserve. And here I'll read for you Ephesians chapter 2. If you wish to turn, it's Ephesians 2, 4. The redemption of mankind because of his mercy. The patient God then responds in his mercy and redemption. In verse 4 of Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy. This idea of saying rich in mercy is just to remind us how infinite it is, how perfect it is. Whatever you have seen as a display of mercy doesn't compare to God's execution of it. What, what is his mercy? How is it experienced in us? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I, I know that's hard to, to, to get a grasp on, but this is written personally to you. Each individual united with Christ, and then notice the exaltation aspect where he has seated us 
in the heavenly places in Christ. This changes the status of those that are in Christ. Uh, Time permits, I'll talk about the status of those that are outside, and I'll just briefly mention what it is. It is a status of guilt. This is no guilt. This is glory. That's what he's pointing to. That's, That's what awaits for those that are in Christ. Would you want anything else? Removed from guilt, moved to glory. And, and why would God even bother doing this? Because he saw something valuable in you to, to, to redeem? No, not at all. The scripture is clear that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He wants to display his mercy. It's experienced by his grace it's experienced by his kindness towards us in Christ in particular. God dies for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is mercy experienced by grace and com- kindness. In the redeemed who know God and have a Christ-like view of mercy, this is expressed in clearer tones by the work of the Holy Spirit. If you have really, like the hymn we sang earlier, if you really have received and know his mercy, it will be reflected in your life towards others. We call that the fruit of the Spirit. We need mercy. As I mentioned, the state of being of those that are in Christ is glory. But outside of Christ is guilt. What's guilt? Well, here's a, from a theological dictionary. It expresses that mercy is usually exercised in connection with guilt. It is an attribute of God, he's speaking of mercy, which leads him to seek the welfare, both temporal and spiritual, of sinners, even though at the cost of a great sacrifice on his part. You know what it costs? Everything. It costs Christ. Another theological word book, goes on then to describe guilt so that we understand it in a way. And I think this is well said. It's closely associated with sin, that is guilt. Sin refers to the action of committing a a moral violation or transgression of the law. Okay, that's sin. The law, you disobey, that's sin. Guilt, on the other hand, refers to, and this is where I'm getting to, the state. The state of being that results from that action of sin. He gives an example in the sense of having committed a sin or done wrong and the moral state of conviction for such an offense. Sin and guilt in Scripture are often interchangeable in that sense, but technically One is the violation of the law, and the other is the state, 
that results from that violation. The promise of the new covenant of God's mercy is that he will atone for that violation, that sin, and thereby removing the guilt. That's key. Back to Hebrews 8.12, and I'll unpack this in a little bit. But back to Hebrews 8.12, notice what this, how this mercy is being fulfilled or expressed. He says, I'm going to be merciful towards what? Iniquities, and then I'll remember their sins no more. Two words, iniquities and sin. Iniquity is simply that which is not righteous. In the Greek, it just puts the alpha privative in front of it and negates it. It means unrighteous. You might think of something that is expressed in injustice, falsehood, wrongdoing. Even doing something not just against the law that's expressed, but also not doing something that you should. The word sin is a word that many are familiar with, harmatia. It actually is used in other contexts, uh, oftentimes as something that we might think of as missing the mark, as if you had a target and you were shooting something at it and you missed the bullseye. But beyond that, (laughs) in most cases, it's missing the target altogether. And here, if you want to look at Romans or just be reminded familiar passages that explains what I'm talking about, 3.23 of Romans, all have sinned and done what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Imagine the target there of perfection, shooting an, an element at it, whether it's an arrow or a bullet or whatever in our day, and it never reaches the target. It falls short. That is the condition of all mankind, and hence guilt. 3.10 in Romans, quoting the Old Testament concept that is true now, none righteous, no, not one. All are unrighteous. No one really understands, that is, no one really knows God on their own. And no one really seeks for God. You say, well, I sought for God. Yeah, because he sought for you. That's why. You, you, you don't know this until you know God and you recognize that we love him because he first loved us. All have turned aside together and become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is the condition of humanity. Sin is then our fault. The condition in which we all enter the world is, as Jesus would say, condemned already. It's our fault because there was, in Adam's sin, we call it the the original sin, we are said to have been considered having sinned in him, him as a representative to all. Paul would Elaborate that in Romans 5. I'll just read it for you, 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men, because all have sinned. 
what I'm getting to is that is the natural state of humanity. That's why you need your sin forgiven. This is why you need your disease healed. Ultimate disease is death. We all die. Why? Because that's the state in which we're in. A state of guilt. That's the natural state. I read some meme that somebody put up. Some of these things are not well thought out, but it says something like, it's not your fault that you were born in sin, but it's your fault if you don't believe in Jesus or something like that. And I wrote back to the pastor. I said, no, it's our fault. We're guilty. We're condemned already. We don't start on a clean slate. Look at the little children, how much attention we have to pay to them to teach them all the things that are right. No one has to teach them how to do wrong. It comes on their own. They, they've got that wired. That foolishness is, is in their very heart. It would take discipline to bring it out and ultimately a change of heart through the very grace of God and his mercy. Mankind typically responds to an idea like that by suppressing, by suppressing that truth, as Paul would elaborate in Romans chapter 1. They suppress it by multiple things, lies, self-deception, if you will, but that won't stand in the light of truth. That won't stand in the perfection that is required by God. People often will acknowledge, by the way, that they recognize that they're guilty or in that state. But their response that I often hear is simply this. Well, nobody's perfect. That's true. And therefore, you recognize that you're guilty. That state of being of condemned already, that's what I mean. The, the transgression that puts you in that state. R.C. Sproul wrote a nice little booklet that I gave out. What can I do with my guilt? It's a real brief booklet. goes over some of these concepts. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. If you need one, I still might have a few around. But in any case, he goes in one section. He talks about uh, Paul's exposition of the fallenness of the human race some of which I've gone through. Those that are under the law, as Paul would say in Romans, they're under the law so that the whole the, their mouths would be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For the, by the works of, of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Because why? Nobody's perfect. Since the law came through, since the... Through the law, though, comes the knowledge of sin. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sproul will comment manifestly and ambiguously, unambiguously, the scriptures teach here not only the reality of human guilt, but the universality of it all. God has declared the whole world and every person in it to be guilty of breaking his law. That's sin. And therefore, it puts you in a state of guilt. He uses an analogy to describe a response to that condition 
that we would all really recognize a false hope. The hope, he says, is that everyone is in the same boat. The maker of the boat and the captain of the boat will not be at all distressed by one person in the boat. If nobody's perfect, certainly God is going to have to grade us on a curve. He will have to do what we do, adjust the standard lower so that he can meet us where we are. And by the way, I I would say that's my experience too. Everyone, when I say everyone, a lot of people, not each and every, but a lot of people think this way. And it's really distressing to think, well, I've done more good than bad, and therefore, you know, God's going to look at that and accept me. I'm not this wicked, evil person. They, They certainly deserve judgment. I've done a lot of good. But God's already declared there's how many good? None. No, not one. Only God is perfect and good. That's why Christ said to come. Because he is holy, perfect, and good. And stands there guiltless. No guilt in him. No condemnation in Christ. Sproul will go on and say, we adjust the target. But God doesn't. He said that would be asking God to change his character. Remember? He's perfect. That's what the word holy means. Above cut above everything else perfect and his law by the way scroll would remind us it it flows out of that character the character of god his laws are righteous because he's righteous he will not adjust the law that reflects his perfections to accommodate you and me as long as he doesn't adjust that law then we remain guilty before that law the answer to guilt is clear it is in Christ, in Christ alone. It is that great high priest who would have mercy, mercy on you and me. As Hebrews 1 begins in 1.3. He makes purification for sin and sits down at the majesty on high. And we'll look at chapter 10 in days to come where this is expanded. And I'll just read it for you about Christ's single sacrifice that he did, sitting then down at the hand of God. One of the things demonstrates the the completeness of it. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that's an important truth that I want to talk about for a few more minutes. This mercy that you'll need, recognizing your standing as guilty, is in Christ and Christ alone. There are many people, and perhaps most, who think they are not guilty, but are. But there's another group that I think that we should spend some time to think about, and that's the people who are not guilty, but yet somehow still think they are. They're not guilty, but they think they are. Back to our text in 8.12. That last line. I will remember their sins no more. 
This is for the redeemed who feel guilt because of their sin. If you're not redeemed, you should feel guilt because you are. But if, in your, if you're in Christ, there's no guilt and no reason to feel that. I, I know you may have genuine sorrow for things that you've done. There may be scars in this life. What's, what's important to note under the new covenant that's expressed here is there is no guilt. Turn to Romans chapter 8. We'll walk through a little bit here and finish up. If you've been redeemed by Christ, it doesn't matter what you've done. You're not guilty anymore. You're no longer in that state. You're raised with Christ, as I mentioned earlier. Seated with him. That's the state of glory, not guilt. And that's the state in which those that are in Christ can experience both now and forevermore. This Romans 8 is a great chapter to read. And this first verse is one to memorize if you have any trouble with guilt or run into anyone who does. That state of being is radically changed. And notice how he begins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When is that no condemnation? Sometime in the future? Something to be perfected at some point? No. Chapter 10, we already talked about it in Hebrews. He's perfecting the saints now. There's no guilt now. You're not guilty anymore. What what an amazing statement to read and to think about in Christ. You, You may feel great sorrow about what you have done, but feel great joy in what Christ has done. That's the point. His grace is greater than all your sin. And what a great glory that there's no guilt. You know why? Because God's a merciful God. That's why. Passage you're familiar with in the same chapter, just to jump down in verse 28. Well, we know that for those who love God, those are the ones who have no condemnation in Christ. Those are the ones that are not guilty. That everything works together for good. Even evil purposes aren't going to overthrow. Because why? You're called according to God's purpose. And here's the, here is the, the chain of, of redemption here. Those who he foreknew. God knew you before you knew yourself. He, he knew you in your mother's womb. And then he plans it. That's what predestined means. To do what? To be conformed to the image of his son. What does the image of his son look like? Absolute perfection. This is the destiny. This is the glory that he's talking about. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In those he predestined, he also called. And those whom called, he also justified. That is, declared not guilty by God. And those he declared not guilty, it wasn't he just set them aside on their own. He glorified, that is, he, he perfected them, that, that sin would be gone. He would stand in his presence in absolute perfection. God will be merciful by not remembering your sin. 
never holding it against you. Never taking it into your account. Remember Psalm 103, where does your sins go? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So Paul would say in 831, what do we say? If God's for us, who can be against us? Nothing. Who, who is to condemn, verse 34? No one. That's what it implied. Because it is God who does what? Justifies, verse 33. No one can bring that charge. You know why? Because you're not guilty anymore. And no matter what you go through, as he, he mentions all these troubles and tribulations and trials, he says, no, verse 37, we're more than conquerors for him who loved us. That is, he expressed his mercy in his love. That's what we experience as love. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In his little book on guilt, R.C. Sproul brought up a, an interesting experience that he had where he was sorry for his sin. And he went to one of his professors and told him about it and confessed and but he was really having trouble feeling guilty about it all. And I understand that. I feel guilty about, feel guilty about things that I do and I wish I didn't do, things that I said that I, I wish I didn't say. But I'm not guilty. And that's what he tried to get through to R.C. He had him read 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. First John 1 John 1.8. So R.C. recognized that he's a sinner. I recognize I'm a sinner. That's the state I'm in and, and I transgress God's law. But the following verse, read that, one nine. you know it? But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sproul recounts that that didn't really make that big of an impact on him. He still felt guilty. So the professor told him, read it again. And he read it again. He said, I still feel guilty. He said, read it one more time. And he read it another time. And he kept reading it and reading it and reading it. And finally, it sunk in. He's not guilty anymore. That is God's mercy. God's mercy to us. Granted to us, not because of our merit, but because of the very character of who he is. You see, feeling guilty, if you will, when you're not guilty, is really a lack of understanding who God actually is. He's merciful. I know you and me are not that merciful in comparison. And 
we might remember what someone did and someone said. So that's our experience. But that's not God's towards us. You know what is the experience that we should receive from it? Is mercy. And in response, we can sing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're thankful for the mercy that you've granted to us in Christ Jesus as we have experienced incredible love, patience, kindness, forgiveness, and the list really is inexhaustible. Our words fail to capture the truth of your character, but to the degree that we can communicate it, I pray that we would grow in that grace and knowledge of you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. This is your opportunity now to think and meditate on these things. Father, we cannot thank you enough for your goodness and kindness to us, flowing from the very character of who you are. May we truly sing your praises this day and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen. I invite you to sing. Sing out from a, a heart that has been reminded about God's mercy, 625. Uh, the elders will need to leave uh, right after this service, so we're not trying to ignore you, but we have a brief meeting we have to attend to today, and so I apologize in advance for that. But you can stay around, gather, talk, greet one another, and sing of his mercies 625 in your hymn book. Let's all stand. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us 
from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and love. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.